This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. Earlier this year, we inadvertently celebrated the 100th anniversary of the classic German horror film Nosferatu in our Halloween special. We talked about how impressive it was for our film to be that old and still hold cultural significance. Earlier this year, That Shelf's Emma Badame wrote an article listing all the major movie anniversary milestones for 2022. On the list was one movie that stuck out for me as I knew it was one of Rachel's all-time favorites. Back on November 26, 1942, the Michael Curtiz directed Casablanca hit theaters. The film came out during World War II and features an international spy mystery with Humphrey Bogart playing Rick Blaine, an American who runs a bar and casino in Casablanca, Morocco, a hub in North Africa controlled by France and the best point of exit for people fleeing the Nazis in Europe. There's some drama about some exit visas that Rick gets in the middle of, right as a leader of the Czech resistance, Laszlo, played by Paul Henreid, and his wife Elsa, played by Ingrid Bergman, come into the picture and try to get the papers. The twist being that Elsa used to be Rick's lover. There's a lot more intrigue and drama in this tight thriller and love story, but I won't get into that right now. Joining Rachel and I to talk about Casablanca is Brody Cottenham, who was last heard on episode 200, Movies That Made Us, where he talked about his love of Halloween. Brody is a screenwriter who wrote the short The Gift and has played at many festivals and won awards. Welcome back, Brody. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, thanks for having me on, guys. How are you? I'm doing excellent. You know what this is? Something that even you have never seen. Round up the usual suspects. And search them for stolen documents. May you see your papers? Do something, you must help me! I'll stick my neck out for nobody. There is a man arrived in Casablanca on his way to America. Victor Laszlo. Laszlo? The Nazis have been chasing him all over Europe. Laszlo must never reach America. He stays in Casablanca. I'm a saloon keeper. The problems of the world are not in my department. Uh, This was uh, a suggestion by Rachel to have you on because you are a screenwriter. And so I thought that she thought that that would be a, a good point of entry for us to, to talk about it. Um, but Rachel, I'm very excited that we get to talk about one of your all time favorite movies. Yeah. About time. I get to do something I want on this show. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. It's obviously, it's one of my absolute all time favorites. Uh, I've seen this movie more times than there's three movies that I've just seen. Like, more like I don't know how many times I've seen them because I don't log everything on Letterbox like some people do. Um, but I've I've just watched it more like countless times that and every single time I love it. And like sometimes you'll see it on TV very ra- rarely, but sometimes it's there. And even though I've seen it a million times, I'll still sit down and watch it, even if I have other things to do. Um, it's a great movie though, and yes. I'm very excited to talk about it. Oh, good. Uh, I guess before we get started, I'd love to kind of know everyone's history with this film. You sort of mentioned there that you've seen it a whole bunch of times, Rachel, but I'd love to know uh, where your love of this movie, the which is the impetus of having this discussion today, started. I was trying to think of when the first time that I watched Casablanca. I had to have been in high school. I actually don't know. It was either high, like it was either high school, maybe university, but it was just one of those movies that um, I think I got much like Brody does actually. So Brody does this a lot. He just goes to the video store, like a local video store and buys whatever DVDs are there or Blu-rays. And I think that happened to me. And I, I happened to come across Casablanca somewhere and I was like, Oh, I've heard of this. And so I picked it up and I watched it and then I fell in love with it and I couldn't stop watching it. 
Um, but I really don't know how old I was. And then I, ever since then, I just, anytime that I see there's a special screening of it, which does happen in Toronto every now and then, um, I'll go and watch it and enjoy it as if it's the first time I'm watching it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I actually can't really pinpoint at what point in my life did I start really loving this movie. What about you, Brody? First time I would have seen it would have been early in university. Um, a couple of my buddies lived together and they both had a pretty good DVD collection. And one of them had it on DVD and me and my other buddy had realized we'd never actually seen it. So yeah, we just were hanging out one night and we decided to watch it and it's, yeah, it's just an incredible movie and I've seen it a couple of times since then. So Nice. Yeah. I can't remember the exact point. I also first watched it. It was definitely as an adult post-college and I can't remember. I know in uh, one of the very first episodes we did, episode seven, uh, when we were going through in uh, decade by decade, the best picture winners. And so when we got to the second decade, Andreas and I, uh, Casablanca was one of the the winners. And uh, and it was one that we both rated very highly. I can't remember if that was the first time I had watched it or if I'd seen it once before that. I don't know. Uh, I've probably only seen this movie maybe three or four times total, but uh, but definitely one that uh, that really does stand up there uh, as one of the all time greats for me. That's a lot for you, actually. You don't really watch rewatch movies, like you. You don't. No, I don't. And I, I feel like the reason why I probably watch it that many times is, is I probably watched it once on my own. And then once for that podcast, and then definitely again for this time. And I can't remember if I've seen it one other time in between. And if I did, it was probably at someone else's uh, request of like, hey, I, I want to watch Casablanca. Do you want to join sort of thing? Uh, not necessarily me just putting it on because I want to watch it. But do you enjoy it every time you see it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. It's funny watching it. It's something we're going to get into. I always forget like how convoluted this movie sort of is at times <laughs> yeah. of like trying to keep track of all the details and like all the backroom dealings and and who owes who what and what's everyone's relationship and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot going on in this movie then like I, I always forget about it until I'm watching it and be like, oh yeah, this is kind of a confusing movie at times. And not very long either. Like I, I know this is something that I think we come, we talk about a lot, or I complain about a lot. Is like really long movies. Um, oh, you're not alone. Yeah, it's 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 become like a real thing to the point that I think we all need to calm down a little bit about it. But um, movies aren't really getting long. I mean, I know that they were long back then, like you have Gone with the Wind and stuff like that. But um, but to me, like what you were just saying, Dakota, the movie shoves in so much stuff, but the runtime is. I want to say just over 90 minutes. Like it, it's not a very long movie at all, um, which I find impressive because I don't think that, I, I don't know, personally, maybe it's because I've actually seen it so many times. So I don't find it confusing because <laughs> I know exactly what's going on and, and where things are, but there are so many little side characters and side plots um, that don't really register. Maybe the first time that you see it, but then they, like it kind of builds out the movie really nicely. And the fact that it's such a short movie, it's impressive that they're able to build in those little details um, alongside the main storyline with, uh, with Rick and Ilsa and Victor. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think, I think if you watch this movie for the first time, a lot of these side characters inside stories 
are are obviously very entertaining, but you can sort of disregard them a little bit because mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter to the overall plot. Like the the stuff with Peter Lorre, uh, or even a lot of the stuff with Sydney Greenstreet. You know, they're they're sort of superfluous and and are just sort of there to kind of keep the plot just rolling enough in the right direction. While they they also kind of have their own stories going on as well. Yeah. Um, but then when you rewatch this movie, you can really appreciate how everything does intrinsically tie in together uh, and and makes this very interesting and unique world where there's plenty of world building going on. Uh, but I, I think, you know, just about everyone's probably seen Casablanca. You know, there's also been countless reviews, podcasts and think pieces written about it. So it'll sort of be tough for us to provide anything new and insightful to say, but I think the best way to frame our conversation is not why this movie is good, but rather why is this movie still relevant and what makes it worth remembering 80 years later? And and I, and I think we all sort of agree that probably the script is the is the thing that really holds this thing together. There's obviously a whole bunch of other stuff we're going to talk about, but Brody, I'd love to kind of start with you, uh, you know, coming from a writing perspective, what sort of things when you're watching this movie, are you able to look at and like, be like, Oh yeah, this is, this is sort of like a masterclass of like how you write a, a solid taught script. Yeah. I think, and not to use too technical a term. It was actually Rachel who mentioned this in her email. Um, it was bestest. I believe is how she described it. Yes. Uh, because it truly is. I think, you know, you, you read any screenwriting book, you take any class, you know, any discussion pragmatically about, you know, the technical aspects of screenwriting, let alone, you know, just the quality of the dialogue and the characters and stuff. But from a technical point of view, as you guys pointed out, there's a lot going on that it manages to do in a very short period of time. And it does it very, very well. And everything serves a purpose. Like there's not a lot that you can be like, oh, well, why was this line of dialogue in there? Or why is this character doing this? Like it's just so woven together. And a lot of the little details, I was thinking about this and you guys will remember the line. Um, when Louise talking about gambling. You know, and he's shocked <laughs> to find gambling at Casablanca. <laughs> and then the guy hands him his winnings. You know, it's like, oh, here's your winnings, sir. So good. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. How can he close me up? On what ground? I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. And it's a great little moment, but in a lesser script, in a lesser story, that would just be a throwaway line because it's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, the cop's corrupt and blah, 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 he's gambling and whatnot, right? But because we know Louis' backstory, because we know he's kind of, oh, I go where the wind takes me sort of thing, it's those little attention to details and character development that really make it, you know, a line that serves to really explain who this character is, even just in a little throwaway bit like that, right? Like if that was in some, you know, goofball comedy, you wouldn't think twice about it. But in something that's as well-written and crafted as this, it stands out as, oh yeah, like that really does indicate, you know, who this guy is and what he stands for. Yeah, that sort of, that sort of is a very good point to illustrate because, you know, his character, 
he he has to feign sort of the ignorance of of the illegal things that are going on while at the same time he's supposed to keep tabs on them. And so what better way to sort of keep tabs on the underground world than also sort of being a part of it at the same time so that way he can speak on authority when he needs to. And he does do that a few times when the the Nazi, the Third Reich officials come and visit Morocco. He is the expert. He goes, you know, we go to Rick's Cafe because that's where everyone goes that you need to see anyone. This is where, you know, the criminals hang out, but also the high class people, the tourists, the people who are trying to get their visas, the locals, all this sort of stuff. And so it's a great line that just sort of sums up a lot of his character in sort of this little pithy, humorous way, but works really well. I would add, too, that there's like another even more throwaway line than that, that um, is or it's like a interchange, I guess. Uh, interchange is an e- exchange between um, Carl, the waiter, the German waiter, and um, two other German, uh, what could we call them? Emigrants who are about to head to America. And they're, mm-hmm. t- they're telling Carl, like Carl goes to them, speaks to them in German at first. And then they go, oh, you know, they respond in English. And they say, oh, we're only speaking English from now until we get to America. And he goes, great. And th- that's lovely. And then the husband asks the wife, oh, what, what, what watch? And then the wife says, like, to watch. And goes, oh, g- great much. And it's just like this idea of like this broken English. And then Carl looks at them with such like, quite like, it- it's like a bit humorous, obviously, because they're, they're not speaking properly, um, but they are trying and like he understands where they're coming from. And I love that scene in particular, even though it do- that scene doesn't really get as much shine as the um, the gambling one. But I feel like it just as what you were saying, Brody, about like how it looks to um, the gambling one looks to Louis. This one kind of paints Carl um, as the type of, you know, little jolly man that he is. But also it, it speaks to a bigger issue in the movie um, where Casablanca really was the place that uh, a bunch of Europeans were trying to flee Nazi Germany and like the Nazi regime that was spreading across Germany or spreading across Europe, sorry. Uh, and they were trying to go to America and like, it just encapsulates so well with a little bit of humor um, as with the Louis situation of what was going on in quite like a dour situation, like a really kind of downtrodden like era in, in human history. Um, but yet they add like a little bit of levity um, while showing bits of the character and also the story. And I always love that part. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's a, also a really good scene. I think looking back to this era of filmmaking, a lot of, issues i have with even movies that are really good is there a a scene will end and then for some reason there'll be a bit of additional unnecessary dialogue so like you know a scene will be taking place in a bar or whatever and the characters leave and then the bartender turns to a different patron and like says a line that has nothing to do with the script or something like that be like oh yeah it's a good night tonight it's like just know when to edit your own dialogue cut that out move on to the next scene we don't need these little you know tag on to the very end and Casablanca is one of these movies that like has no fat on the movie at all it, it says what it needs to say it lingers when it needs to linger but then it also has no problem just moving the plot along to the next scene we don't you know uh, see any unnecessary dialogue or scenes and I think that's something that helps with making the movie age well because a lot of times when you know, people who are getting into film and film history and they're trying to watch older movies, you kind of struggle because there's a lot of fat on some of these movies where you're just like, there's, 
I don't understand what what's going on. And you sort of have a disconnect because you can't truly appreciate what the movie is doing because you're too caught up with like, why, why are they showing this? Why you don't need to say this. And, and it's something that is a bit of a mental block for me sometimes too. When I watch certain films that like have not aged as gracefully. And I think what this movie does really well is, is just really get to the point. Um, how, how, how did you feel about that aspect Brody, as far as, the screenplay goes. Well, no, that's spot on um, to your point. And in terms of, you know, cause I know you guys want to talk about what makes it has aged so well. I also think the dialogue that they do use is still very similar to way. I mean, with some exceptions, but like the way people would talk in a manner today, like there's not a lot of, I guess of its time or expressions that, you know, we wouldn't use today. Like there's not a whole lot of dialogue where you have to look up and be like, well, what are they talking about? Or what does that expression mean? Like it, it very much is still something that you can watch without having to kind of question, you know, why they're saying what they're saying or how they're saying it. I think the cadence is interesting because that's something that I know a lot of people struggle with, with older films is the way that the people talk in those. It's like that, kind of like conan o'brien does it a lot it's like that oh, old yeah. timey yeah like the old timey talky thing like um, james they don't, cagney yeah like exactly cagney. yeah mm-hmm. but they don't do that in casablanca really i mean no not at all you know you could there is moments in the way that they the acting is done it is a bit of its time um but to me it's like i don't know there it, it's it's oddly timeless where whereas some of the other movies that were made right around the same time and by the same studio um that don't have that quality to it and i don't like i never really i i've read a lot about this movie and like that's one thing that nobody's ever really touched on is to like why that was and if it was an intentional decision or my guess is is that's just kind of how it came out like that's just how the movie ended up working i don't think that they were aiming on being a timeless movie um Mm -hmm. because in this era I mean, I don't know what the number is, but there like it's hundreds of movies that come out a year by a single movies studio. were very disposable, yeah. Yeah. And so it, I think they said at one point I was reading a book, like what was oh, I wish I'd written this down now. Um, but it was like every week you would have like from one studio, you would have like a handful of movies that came out every single week. Mm-hmm. And so across one calendar year, it's a ton. So Casablanca was just another one of those movies. And it's an interesting thing to bring out, like uh, to to skew the conversation um, of saying, like, why is it that some movies stick and others don't? And Casablanca has stuck more than most movies, like even even a movie like um, like Vertigo, for example. Like we we talk about Hitchcock a lot on the show, um, but it's like a movie like Vertigo has stood the test of time. But it's not one that you would say every single person will enjoy it when they watch it because it's not for everybody. Versus this movie, I can't really imagine recommending it to someone and someone not liking it. Like regardless of what your uh, tastes are, what your what your movie styling is, it's like everybody will find something in this to enjoy, and I, that is quite an accomplishment for a film that didn't have that foresight. And probably because it didn't have that foresight, and they weren't trying for timelessness, that's probably it adds to the fact that it is it feels a bit more effortless in that way. Yeah, I want to I want to come back a little bit to maybe comparing it to other movies of that era, but uh before we do that, I think 
talking about the dialogue and stuff like that, there's almost a screwball comedy esque feel to the way some of the dialogue happens. <laughs> I, I every time I, I also forget watching this movie is just how funny this movie is at times. And I wrote yeah. down a couple lines that I really liked. Um, and someone asked Rick, uh, "What are you doing tonight? I don't make plans that far in advance." Uh, or when uh, Captain Louis says, "I'm only a poor corrupt official," like lines like that are just hilarious. <laughs> And and it works because it's it's screwball esque, not in the sense of you know it's rapid fire talking over each other sort of thing, but this like really sort of um, sarcastic joke heavy dialogue that is easy to understand, and you and you, you get exactly who these characters are, but at the same time, it hasn't dated it. I love screwball comedies, but some of the humor in screwball comedies is very dated now in the way that they talk. Like you guys were saying if the, the the cadence and the way that they spoke and all that sort of stuff. Whereas with this, this is very much a, a modern dialect film uh, with modern humor that just has sort of stayed the whole time, this sort of s- sarcastic, self-deprecating sense of humor throughout it. Very dry, yeah, very, very dry yeah. humor. Yeah, no, it has my all-time favorite movie insult ever <laughs> is when um, Claude Rains is talking to Rick and he says, you despise me? And his <laughs> response is, you despise me, don't you? Although I gave you any thought, I probably would. And, like, <laughs> so you good. might as well just write your eulogy after that. It's like, so good. Like that, like, that is to me, that is the all-time just... Because yeah. just is... the way he delivers it, and it doesn't need to be vulgar or crass or anything. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's the way he carries it off. It's just so brilliant. And to your point, Rick Dakota, is... there's so many lines like <sighs> that or there's just so many back and forth, like Rick calls himself a drunkard. And then there's a good line. He's like, that makes him a citizen of the world. Yeah. <laughs> things like it's, there's just, that's again, what makes things stand the test of time is clever. Not even, it's not even quippy dialogue. It's just witty. And it doesn't need to rely on, you know, being of its time or anything. It's just a great, like you could use that line today, you know, and mm-hmm. it still have a great impact. It's interesting comparing it like you just said quippy because like I, when you were talking to Coda, it made me think of like what is the modern day humor that we see on screen a lot. And I don't know if it kind of still is um, in movies today, but like the the very quick banter like between characters like that's been a very um, common pattern or I don't know, style, I guess, in comedy um, in the last, say, 10 some odd years um, where people just go really like rapid fire back and forth to each other. Um, and that comes from movies like I'm thinking of like 500 days of summer or something like that, where um, is that what the movie's called? Five, yeah. 500 days of summer um, where they, it's just like, a, and then you have the quippy Ryan Reynolds kind of comedy styling as well. And it's just really amusing to me that like this, this kind of dry humor that I think we most commonly associate dry humor with British humor. Um, mm that's been the thing that even if you watch something like faulty towers now it still really works today whereas i don't think the other screwball kind of lace and arsenic kind of humor doesn't really work as much or as well today and i would imagine that the quippy bantery humor that we've seen a lot in film recently I can imagine that that's going to look really dated in maybe 10 years, um, yep. maybe even less actually. Cause it already or feels a like bit the... dated. Like when I see that, right. Like you're kind of like, eh, like, yeah, we get it. This was, this was clever in like 2008 and not so yeah. much now. 
or even like the the sort of Marvel sense of humor because the mainstream comedy mm-hmm. just aren't being produced at all. And so basically most of our major studio comedies are coming in the form of, of humor like the Marvel movies, Ryan Reynolds, action yeah. movies, things like that. Yeah, very like winky and like, and I love Fleabag um, and I, I think it's a great show, but even that kind of like the fourth wall breaking, like literally winking at the audience um, kind of humor, like that, all that stuff, I can't imagine it standing the test of time. And I don't know why British, the dry British um, humor and the that, that dry quality kind of continues. I guess humans are just always really sarcastic people, no matter what generation or what era. Well, it tends to be more clever too. Like, yeah, a lot of the winking stuff is like, ah, okay, it's tongue in cheek, or um, a lot of the Judd Apatow kind of stuff. Like, yeah, there's some funny bits, but a lot of it's predicated on, let's be honest, like dick and fart jokes or things like that. Which some of them work, some of them aren't going to hold up as well. You know, you watch some some of his older movies, and it's like, yeah, I don't know if you could do that joke today, kind of thing. Versus like a Dumb and Dumber toilet scene. Yeah, forever, <laughs> last forever. Those are that was great. That's classic Hollywood right there. That's golden era <laughs> Hollywood, as far as exactly. I'm concerned. But that's the thing. Like, I think a lot of the stuff in Dumb and Dumber, and, and the great irony of something like Dumb and Dumber, not to want to want, but it's like it's dumb humor, but there is a cleverness to it. Like mm-hmm. the bits are well written, so that as much as it is you know stupid, it is you know there's some insight into how you would write it and why it works. I suppose, too, like if we're talking about the humor of today in particular, it is a reaction to the many decades of humor before it. Like a lot of the stuff we do now is like reactionary and you're trying to be meta. You're trying to be like you said, like the tongue in cheek thing is to be tongue in cheek to the typical tropes that we've seen. Whereas dry humor and the humor of Casablanca is just like well-written dialogue that is funny. And it's not in a response to anything. It's not, um, you know, because you do that, you go left, I'm going to go right. Like that, it's not like that at all. Uh, and I, I don't know if that, that kind of lends to why it, it's remained as well. Cause comedy is one of the hardest things I think for it to age. Well, comedy is such a, like we've seen that, especially in the last 20 years, like how difficult it is for comedy to last. And even though like, you know, Dakota, you said this straight off the bat was like, this is not a comedic movie in a, in many ways. It's not labeled as, as a comedy, but it is very funny. Like there are a lot of very, very funny moments in it. Yeah. And, but I also think what works is because this isn't just a pure comedy. This is also a sort of, I don't want to call it a spy movie, but there is elements of, of mm-hmm. espionage and thriller as well, but it's also a love story. And I think that's maybe one of the hardest things to do. And, and you look at some of the greatest movies of all time. It's movies that are able to balance multiple genres at the same time and not just be one thing or not shoehorning other genre elements in it as well. Because we, we've all seen countless movies where, you know, it's a perfectly good movie and then suddenly it has a romance plot thrown in because, <laughs> you know, they're trying to reach certain demographics or they think they need to add some more character depth or things like that. And that that's the answer is like, you know, we'll just make our uh, our leads hook up. And, you know, that's that's a good way to do it. Whereas this actually has some some real interesting, you know, European World War II thriller espionage stuff going on as far as the true story of people, you know, fleeing the extending arms of Nazi Germany 
taking over different countries and finding ways to escape to America. And so we get that, you know, very real aspect to it. But then the love story that is central to this is a love story from the past. It's not happening in the moment. And sure, yeah, they're they're flirty and they have great chemistry, Bergman and in in Bogart. But what's interesting is that it's it's a it's a love story that's already happened, and we're so, we're sort of witnessing the after effects of how it all played out. And so I think adding all of these elements together and these multi genres and the fact that it's a witty dialogue all sort of comes together to to make the the sum of its parts even greater. I would say too, like on point of it being a love story, that the love story is very much so like it's woven into the war and the espionage and all that yeah. stuff with with Victor Laszlo and that like it's not just like you said like so many movies they just yeah the two leads they're hot so let's like let's get them to hook up at some point um and it doesn't do anything to the movie but it's just something that we should probably do here uh whereas this one like it is you know I'm sure we'll talk about the ending at some point but like it brings up an interesting question of like you know is there something greater than the love between two people who, you know, met each other at the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and now that they come back together, you know, it, the, the big question is, is like, was always, does she really, who does she want to go with? Like in this little kind of love triangle um, between the three of them. But the, at the end of the day, it was always, there is a greater thing. Like there's a greater thing that is happening in the world that it doesn't matter about love. It doesn't matter about that because, just something higher is at stake here. And the, I, th- I think the fact that they weave those things so effortlessly together, I keep using that word effortlessly because I'm sure it wasn't effortless. Like I'm sure a lot of work <laughs> a went lot into effort. this. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure a lot of work it went into it. It seems effortlessly. It does seem effortless. And it's just like the way that you can combine two stories like that, um, seemingly like unrelated, but you can put them together so perfectly and so well and that it makes sense and it raises interesting questions and discussions that have been happening for, you know, 80 years now, you know, like people still think about like, did she really, did Ilsa really love Rick or did she just say that? Or like what was going on and kind of things like the fact that you can still have conversations about that so many years later um, is incredibly impressive. Well, and I mean the love story, it's instrumental in Rick's character mm-hmm. arc too. Mm-hmm. Like without the love story, his character arc, who he is, what he is, is completely, completely different. Yeah, yeah. I lo- like the 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 man that you see at the very beginning when they do like the great shot of him, like panning it in the in his lovely white tux and things like that. To that that end scene, which is also very iconic, the the way that they finish it off. Like um, he's a completely different man from start to finish. And then the fact that again, this is going to what you were saying, Dakota, about. Um, how this is a love story from the past. Like we do get glimpses of what Rick was like when he was in love and when he was very carefree and just, you know, quite jovial. And then, but the first time we met him, he was, he was a sassy little man, um, <laughs> just giving quips to everybody. But, you know, like his character arc is, is very interesting. And um, probably i would say not the most compelling but like louis is also really interesting as well his his character arc is great because he says he he just goes you know where the wind takes him and right now the prevailing winds was vichy like that's what he says at some point and um but then in the end like he does what we consider to be the right thing uh, which is not necessarily where the wind was was telling him to go 
I, if we can talk about, I just love that opening sequence where they introduce Rick. Yeah. And, and when you get so into the good. script, like talking it's about so why good. the script, ta- um, you know, holds up and all that kind of stuff. It's such an interesting character dynamic because he, what's he doing? He's sitting in front of a chessboard, right? Yeah. And I, the chessboard is one of those classic, I, I don't know what how much it was used back then, but it has kind of become like a bit of a trope in the sense that, oh, if they're playing mm-hmm. chess, you know, he's he's a thinking man and he sees, <laughs> you know, ahead. And that's the thing. Like he he's talked about before they even get there, right? Yeah. When they get off the plane, they're like, oh, as you said, oh, we all go to Rick's. Everyone hangs out there. This is just what you do. And then the people are asking, oh, we have to meet Mr. Rick and all this stuff. And then we meet Rick. And then basically – within about a minute or less of meeting him, you know, there's people trying to come in and he's waving certain people in. And then this other guy's like, Oh, do you know who I am? And he's like, yeah. And you're lucky the bar is open to you. <laughs> and chess is kind of the metaphor for it's like Rick knows the game. He knows all the pieces he's in control almost more than the military people or the police. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. he's kind of set up as an authority figure all from just like that very short introduction. And it's such a subtle, like, he's such a cool character as well. Like, he's got this really subtle, when when they, um, like, the doorman's like, can he go in? And, and Rick, it's literally just the littlest nod from him. And then it just sets a whole thing off. And, like, everything you need to know about who Rick is, is, like, in that, what, two seconds, one second um, in the movie. And, yeah, that's incredible. Like, that's, it's, obviously, it's a tie of, like, the screenwriting but also the camera work like it's amazing like this movie has some of the most beautiful black and white shots and uh the way that they pan over the i always love the way that they pan over the the nightclub and like and you can see all these little things going on um like dakota you said it it's world building like before Mm -hmm. you know a lot of people like to talk about world building now in the confines of of sci-fi and like things that aren't of this world and that you need to bulk the world out a little bit because we don't know it um but that was i mean if you think of it kind of in the time that it was made it's like it's not a world unlike the one that we were living in it is very much on earth it is very much like in the contemporary moment but i mean and that that speaks to a lot of why it, it has stood the test of time because it is built out so well um you never, you always feel engaged in it. You always feel immersed into the world that they created. Um, and it never feels otherworldly in that sense. Absolutely. And, and maybe a, a sad retrospect too is why it feels so relevant is you could write something like this about any, <laughs> something that has come after, whether it's, you know, could have been during, you know, the Gulf War, could be what's going mm-hmm. on in the Ukraine or Russia right now, you know of people trying to get out and love, you know, maybe somebody's left behind like that. Those types of stories lend itself to that kind of timelessness because you can look around and still see irrelevance in your own world. Cause to your point, it, it created a fictionalized version of something that's very real. Mm-hmm. That's depressing, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. quite sad. Thanks for bringing us down, Brody. Well, that's that's what you told me to do in the email. <laughs> uh, you're you're comparing earlier just to something maybe like Vertigo or whatnot, which came a little bit later. But I want to sort of compare it to a movie like uh, Citizen Kane, and mm-hmm. and the reason why I'm doing that is Citizen Kane is you know 
we all know how it's it's often regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. But for people who, when they're getting into film history and they're watching it, they often will watch and go, okay, so what's the big deal? Yeah. Because the importance of Citizen Kane isn't so much that you watch it and you're just like, wow, this movie is amazing. It's more so remembering where film was before it and how Orson Welles was sort of changing cinema on the fly and creating his own new rules, which eventually became the template for movies afterwards. So you watch a movie today and you watch Citizen Kane and you can sort of see some similarities, not realizing that that was the real turning point in film history's moment. And so a lot of people will watch and be like, oh, it was a little slow, it was a little boring, I didn't quite get it, it jumped around too much. All these different complaints that you can have about Citizen Kane uh, which, which are completely valid. I, I am a, a huge fan of it. And so I often sort of bristle when people are like, oh, I, I didn't really get it. It's not that great. Whatever people will say about it, because I, I do think it's a masterpiece. But then you look at something like Casablanca, which, you know, came out in a similar era. Um, it doesn't have the sort of same hangups. You know, Rachel, you're talking about how you can recommend it to just about anyone and they will probably enjoy it because it's got a little bit of everything. You know, it's it's got the mystery, it's got the romance, it's got the humor, it's got the great character development. Uh, it's a very linear, it's a linear set film, so you you understand exactly everything is going from A to Z and all that sort of stuff. Why do you think that maybe no one has any real hangups with this movie? Like, is there a reason why maybe this isn't regarded in the same light as something like Citizen Kane? It's a simple answer, but I wonder if it's just simply because people build up, built up Citizen Kane so much. Like, to call it the greatest film of all time, like, consistently, that's a really big claim. And I personally, I know that, you know, Sight and Sound and other places are going to be coming out with, like, lists of, like, what's the greatest movie of all time. But, like, to me, that's a very unanswerable question. It, because mm-hmm. I don't know if there is such thing as the one single greatest movie of all time, because like how is it the greatest in what under what conditions under what through what parameters and things like that but i think the fact that citizen kane was constantly always set being labeled as the greatest thing so when people go watch it especially modern day audiences if you go and watch it it's not anything i don't want to say it's not remarkable i like that movie too i think it's a great movie um and i understand from the kind of the film history perspective of like it, how you very eloquently put it um, of it, you know, there were movies before and then there's movies after citizen Kane and the influence that that movie had on film cin- on film history is um, it's indescribable. Like you can't really put, uh, you can't really quantify just how, how influential that movie was. But I think that when you go into a movie thinking and hearing all the time that this is supposed to be the greatest movie of all time, our perception of what makes a great movie today is not necessarily considering the historical like influence of it. Um, whereas Casablanca, I don't think has that label. Everyone knows it's a very well-known movie. It's a classic. It's a very, very, you know, entertaining film. And the one that has been enjoyed for a very long time by many generations, families, whatever. Um, and because it doesn't have the burden almost of saying it's the greatest movie of all time, I think that it allows it to just exist as a film. And I think if Citizen Kane had that, as well, like if you took that um, label away from it, I think more people would probably enjoy Citizen Kane. Mm. It was a good movie. I think so. I, it's the old, you know, they build you up to tear you down sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah, it's like, or music. I know Dakota, you're a big music guy. Like people who rag on like the Beatles. It's like, you're just yeah. doing it to say you're doing it. 
Yeah. No, yeah. I admit my bias. I'm a big Beatles fan, but it, it is that point when something is labeled as, oh, it is the best. Well, everyone's going to find a way to tell you you're not because mm-hmm. that's just human nature, right? Yeah. I mean, like even I, it's like a very modern example, but it's like even a movie like Titanic, which was the biggest thing at the time when we were young. I didn't, not that I didn't like it, but I guess you're young and you're just kind of being like, eh, it's, not, it's like a grown up movie. You're like, whatever. Like mm-hmm. I recently watched it again. I'm like, this is actually a pretty good movie. Like I understand why people like Titanic so much. Like it wasn't a fluke why it was such a big deal. Um, but when you put these things on it and just and give it such lofty expectations, not to say that, you know, we shouldn't be celebrating good movies when they're good or when they're great, rather. Um, but yeah, I think that we live in a very contrarian time as well, where everybody just mm-hmm. wants to go the other way. The biggest issue with Titanic was having to get up and put in the second VHS. Speaking really of long movies, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's true. It is very dating. Yeah. Very we didn't own a lot of movies as kids, but that was one we had, and I vividly remember that. Yeah, that, that was a thing. And you had to rewind two tapes. That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the performances. You know, Humphrey Bogart is occupies this sort of weird space in in movie history, and I don't mean whether or not he was liked or not. You know, uh, Bogart very famously tried his best to hide that he was acting when he was in movies. You know, he liked to, in in, in interviews and talking about his craft, liked to come across as very nonchalant. And yet the more you read about him and the more anecdotes you find, you realize he was actually very... Uh, particular about the way he would prepare for movies, uh, the way he would prepare for scenes, and the ideas that he would bring to his character. And, you know, you, you look at, you you do yourself a little Humphrey Bogart marathon, and you realize he often is sort of playing very similar characters. And, you know, that's that's just sort of part of the course for that era of Hollywood, where he's like, great, you're a tough guy, you're going to be a tough guy in every single movie you ever play. Oh, you're, uh, you're you know, you're a, a leading lady, great, you're going to be that, everything, you're going to be the romantic lead in everything you ever play. Oh, you're you're the funny guy, you're going to be the side best friend character in everything that you're ever going to play. So so obviously there's there's nothing really, you know, groundbreaking about saying that he plays a lot of the same characters. But he does a lot very subtly in this film his arc is quite subtle you know you you sort of don't even realize until the very end of the movie when he puts laszlo and elsa on the plane to to escape to uh lisbon that he's actually changed as a person for the most part you know he's doing this whole you know i don't get in the middle of anything i don't pick sides i'm apolitical i am not your friend i am just a person here and yet you watch it closely and you realize very slowly when, you know, we're, we're learning more information about him, how he's slowly changing as a character. And you can, you can't quite pinpoint the moment, but you realize, oh, after this moment, he is now a changed man, even if his character hasn't fully changed. Yeah. And I think you see little things like to your point, especially as the movie goes on. Um, oh, and I mean, it's a repeated line. So anytime something's repeated, you can make it a focal point. It's I don't stick my neck out for anybody. Mm-hmm. And Rick says that a couple of times. And then obviously by the end, he is willing to, you know, stick his neck out for somebody or even helping. I want to say they were going to Bulgaria, like whatever, whoever the young couple was, I forget what country they were trying to get to or oh, from, yeah. rather. Uh, and he wets him, wets him when it roulette so he can get the money and then get out. Right. So they can afford their visas. 
And so, and he saved that girl from Louis because, like, there's the very heavy implication that Louis was making her sleep with him, and like he basically Mm -hmm. saved her from that. Because uh, even though she doesn't look it to our eyes, I think, but she's meant to be like quite a young girl, like a teenager, um, in that. And so, which is also a very heavy thing to put like just thrown into a movie like this. Like it's it kind of goes over your head at some points because it it passes you by kind of quick, but like you said, it, it really speaks to Rick. And I actually think the Rick that we see is like, I don't know if it's necessarily him as a character changing. Even though I, I said like the character that we first see at the beginning of the movie is not the same man that we see at the very end. But I think that it's like, look, I always looked at it as Rick the whole time that he was in Casablanca because he was so heartbroken because he was quite jaded. It was like, he was covering for who he actually was, which is, you know, a a much more relaxed kind of guy. And one who they always talk about him, you know, joining the fight, like welcome back to the fight kind of Mm -hmm. thing. But I always took it as like, he never really left because that club that he had, it was kind of a club for exiles. It was a place where, you know, we often talk about like diversity and all that kind of crap today, but like, sorry, I shouldn't have called it crap. Um, we often talk about like the diversity. The one non-white guy on the show is not going to talk. It's just, you know, it's, it's the very, um, we talk about it in ways as, is it being a marketing tool and is something that's very trendy, um, which is my gripe with it. Not the fact that we see different people on screen, obviously, but just to be clear, I'm all for diversity. It's good. Um, but like in Rick's, like you went, like I, I, already brought it up like when they pan over the nightclub like you see so many different types of people you know and and the fact that um you know his best friend in it is a black man and who uh would have had like a terrible life at that point in in the states right but with rick they're equals in in many ways um because they're they're buddies and they like go in and they've been together for a long time um so to me it was like rick never really left the fight like he was always fighting but just in a very different way and so when ilsa comes back into the picture i feel like it kind of snaps him out of trying to cover and hide who he was but i don't think Mm -hmm. that he actually ever stopped being the core of who he is slash was no, and I think I that's his entire character arc is yeah. basically. Yeah. And Laszlo and him have that discussion at the bar, and he talks about why Rick is at this place yes, and what it means. Yes, yes. And so literally, I, to me, if you ask me what is Rick's story, it's about a man who, like they said, he fought against the fascists in Spain. Mm-hmm. He ran guns to help people for freedom fighters. Like when you see him with Ilsa, that's kind of always who he was. Yeah. And then because he was so heartbroken, he just kind of turned on the world, shut out the world and said, uh, you know what, I'm done with this. And so the the whole character arc is this is who he was. Then this is who we see him at who he's become afterwards. And then it's how do I get back to being, you know, who I really am. Yeah. And he, he tries to like cover it up too in that conversation with Victor as being like, oh, and, and they paid really well too. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, but Victor's like, yeah, but surely the winning side would have paid even better. Do any of the other performances sort of uh, stand out for you in, in, in making this movie great? I've got two. Um, Conrad Veit, Veit? I don't yeah, Veit. Um, he is the one who plays Major Strasser. Uh, I 
love him in this. And when I learned a bit more about him, I just loved him more as a, as a human being. Cause so he, mm-hmm. he was uh, an actor from Germany and he left because his wife is Jewish. And so obviously in that time um, wasn't a great time for Jewish people in Germany. And so they had fled and left and he purposely took roles that showed German slash Nazis in a very, very negative light. Like he kind of almost purposely went out of his way to do those things because he wanted to show American audiences and um, I suppose the greater world, like what was really going on and, and how bad things were. Um, And I have a lot of respect for somebody like that because, you know, we, it's often talked about these days about like, Oh, freedom of speech and all that kind of stuff. Like, back then like you it really was a quite a dangerous thing to do what he was doing even though he was you know on the other side of the world and and seemingly free but it's like he never got to go back home he never you know he had to give up his life for that and um i've always really respected that but he's like and then just objectively as well he's a great actor and he's very very good um as major strasser yeah, and it's kind of crazy that like this was the the last movie that he made before he died. He had one more movie that came out uh, after he died, um, but yeah, this was the last movie he saw come out, which was was pretty crazy. He's also interestingly enough the inspiration for uh, the Joker character uh, because he was in a movie called The Man Who Laughs, and a very early horror movie where he does this, you know, very maniacal laughter and clownish behavior as a, you know, criminal. And so it was the basis for the Joker character. I didn't know that. Fun fact. I've heard, yeah, I've never seen the movie, but I've certainly heard the of the work. I didn't know he was yeah. the guy who played it. That's interesting. I was going to say, Brody, before you go, I just want to shout out also Madeline LeBeau, who plays Yvonne. Um and she's like another, she's just like a side character in this. She's not really, she's the one who asked Rick, uh, like, where were you last night? And he, he says, you know, that was so long ago. I don't even remember kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, my favorite scene in Casablanca is uh, when they, the entire club sings um, La Marseille. And it's like a really, really beautiful moment um, that, is like oddly really moving even if you're not french like it's very it's very strange like but it's just Mm -hmm. this idea of you know these people who are in casablanca in this club not out of choice um they're there because of something again something greater that's happening in the world um and you know the camera pans to her a lot when uh you know when they're singing and and she's like very emotional and she's crying and things like that and then you learn that like uh, not just her, but a lot of the actors that were in this movie, they were all exiles from Europe. They were all people who left Europe. Or I shouldn't say exiles, but like they all were people who left Europe um, because of what was going on there. And so when you have a scene like that, like it is, it touches them in the, in a very, very personal way. Um, but I thought she was just great as Yvonne, as like this kind of random girl who's always in the background of the club and um, who's got like a little history with Rick and with Sasha and things like that. And I think she's really fun. And I believe she was, she died not that long ago, like just five or six years ago. I want to say she passed away. Um, So yeah, she lived, she lived a long life as well. Cause she was, I think the last person from Casablanca to pass away. Yeah. She died in 2016 and she was Um, the last remaining cast member. Yeah. I I really like that that moment too, Rachel, because it's, it kind of shows the inner conflict of what a lot of them, because at that point she was hanging out with a German soldier, right? Right. Yeah. And so yeah. she's tearing up because she's kind of almost questioning herself in that moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And like, there's the scene right before that too, when she comes into the club with a German and then a French person like is basically like, what the hell's wrong with you kind of thing. Um, And like, she goes back and yeah, you're right. It it does speak to just how precarious things were back then. I, if I had to pick another performance, I still love Louis. I think he's so great. (laughs) He's great. Yeah. He's very, very great. Yeah. Like his, his dialogue is witty. He's, and he's self-aware too. Like that's the other thing. Like, yeah. He tells Rick at the end, he's like, you're the only one who has less scruples than me kind of thing. Like <laughs> he's not unaware of what he's chosen to do and how he's chosen to conduct himself. And in a way you don't always agree with his decisions, but you almost respect the fact that he's honest. Yeah. Yeah. Again, he's that guy that says like, I, I go where the wind goes, like wherever the wind yep. blows, like that's where I'm at. And um, you know, he's like, he's a survivor. He's somebody who just says, you know, it's not about morals. It's about surviving and, and staying alive and um, living comfortably as well. Like he, he's, he's got a pretty penny on him. So he's great. And Claude Rains is amazing. He's, he's an excellent actor. Yeah. He is someone who's had a very lengthy career and he always pops up and, and made every movie he was in better. I, I love him as the lead in the invisible man. One of his, his first lead role. He's great in that. Or as uh, Prince John in the adventures of Robin hood as the, the bad guy, he, he's got this really smarmy persona to him that it was yeah. great. It's the mustache. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. The mustache. But before we go, is there any last sort of things that uh, anyone wants to bring up of, of reasons why this movie still resonates so highly for them? The music. The music is amazing. The music is like the score is tremendous and it is very in keeping with the time of like the really booming orchestra and like horns and things like that. Um, and the as time goes by is a really classic song. Like all you need is just a nice voice and a piano. And that song, you know, it's what, it's kind of one of those funny songs. That's like, I don't, it's not like a, like what a wonderful world. It's not like, um, trying to think some other like classic songs from that time. Like, it's not like that necessarily, but it is one that when you hear it, it just like, it can take you back to a time that you never even lived in yourself. Um, And I, I think the music is just tremendous. You must remember this A kiss is still a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by Yeah, it's funny now watching this as a big fan of the podcast you must remember this and that's the theme song mm, for it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and they use it like a little ditty of it to for the 20th century fox i believe um like at, oh, right really? at the beginning yeah like i it, i think it's more i don't know if they still use it in their introduction maybe not because disney took it over but um there was like there's like a piano like just like a little riff on the piano um as they go into the big 20th century fox thing um but yeah they they used it for for that as well because it is so good like it is and it's just a few notes but it's very recognizable even if you've never really seen the movie somehow the sound the music sounds like you've heard it before i think if i had one complaint about the script there's a moment later in the film uh when you've got um laszlo and elsa are are going back to their hotel room and they're being followed and 
they get into the room and they they know that they have uh, someone from the SS following them and they're they're outside their hotel room and he turned the lights off. He goes, okay, we're going to pretend to go to sleep and then I'm going to go to the underground meeting. And then they turn the lights off and then two minutes later he looks out and goes, great, he's already gone. The tail is lost. <laughs> and then he's able to like leave through the front door of the hotel. And it's just like, that's, that's the one moment of the script where I'm just like, that could have been written a little bit better if they like, have them sneak out the back of the hotel and you see them, you know, sneakily, you know, running across the street when the guard is looking in a different direction or something like that. That would have made it so much better other than the fact of like, oh no, we turn the lights off and 30 seconds later he decides, nah, they're going to stay in for the rest of the night. Listen, this movie, like we said at the very beginning, it has a short runtime. All right. So you got to just get going. <laughs> you can't wait around for people. Like you got to just keep going. You got to keep it moving. But yeah, fair point. It is a bit odd. They didn't have a, the budget for a Michael Bay chase scene, so <laughs> <laughs> he, they couldn't make like set a trap with like big explosions so that he could run away. Um, yeah, I mean it's a good point. I, it's one of those I think it, that is kind of like a trope of its time, almost like where just things very conveniently happen. Um, yeah, and I well, wonder if that's like an audience preference, where like audiences back then just kind of didn't care about stuff like that. They just went, yeah, yeah, like now now they're sleeping, good move on with the story we don't need yeah we don't I also need, think like, it's realism the runtime thing too right yeah it's like, quick yeah. Maybe. Yeah. keep it going you got to keep the movie going victor doesn't have time to wait he's just he's he's got to go to a meeting i think yeah. for me um just and you guys kind of touched on it earlier any really great movie works in different aspects. So I think what makes it stand out, what makes it still hold up is to your point, there's the romance angle, there's the spy angle. You know, it's, if you were describing this to somebody, it, you couldn't simply describe it as, Oh, well, it's just, it's about a war movie, right? Because there's a lot more to it than that. You can't be, Oh, well, it's, it's kind of a spy movie because there's so much more to it than that. And there's all these periphery characters. There's all these other storylines. Like, but yeah, I don't think we've even talked about Ferrari yet. Mm. And like, the stuff going on with him, right? And how Rick's trying to sell the bar and he's thinking of leaving. So there's so many different mm-hmm. angles. And I think any really good story weaves together what they call, um, you know, if you're writing a script, the movie within the movie. So, you know, you could do a movie centered on Ferrari and his dealings there, or you could do a movie centered on Louis and, you know, just make him the main character about what's going on. And I think that's one of the strengths is that they managed to, fill in this movie with such depth and great background characters in a relatively short period of time and still make them all interesting. Yeah, I agree. And uh, you know, I love Peter Laurie. He's one of my favorite character actors and and I love that he's in this movie, even if it's only for about the first 10 minutes of the film before he, he gets caught and ends up dying. Um, this movie is just absolutely stacked with with fantastic performances across the board. Everyone really shows up, does the work that needs to be done to sort of not distract from the plot. Because we've all sort of seen that where, you know, like, oh, yeah, and this movie features a, a popular character actor that day. And they're, they're kind of just doing their own thing that doesn't really relate to this movie at all. Whereas all the actors in Casablanca are all sort of working towards the same goal. Definitely. And that's everything is so woven together so well. That again, and I, I will be biased, obviously, saying the script. If you don't do that in the script, it really stands out, and you're going to raise all these red flags where it's like, well, this character, you know, what was their motivation here? What was, you know, 
there was no depth to them. They were there, but you know, you didn't really relate to them and there wasn't something that stood out. Whereas in this, every character seems to have a little bit, even if you don't like them, they serve their purpose and they did it well. Well, then, in that case, I think that sort of wraps up our discussion of Casablanca, you know, celebrating 80 years of this movie. Hopefully, everyone has already seen it. If you haven't, it gives you an excuse to watch it, and it also gives you an excuse to rewatch it. Uh, Brody, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Where can people find you in your work? Is there anything you want to promote? Uh, yeah, I. while it exists, I'm still on Twitter, so we'll go from there. <laughs> And my short film, The Gift, is actually up. Uh, they put it up earlier this year on Moonrise Productions, uh, their webs or their YouTube channel. Uh, so you can always check that out there. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to uh, to link to the short in the show notes. Uh, uh, Rachel, what about you? Uh, is there any new things you want to promote on that Asian cut in particular? Uh so the Asian cat, we just finished real, the Toronto real Asian film festival, um, just wrapped up on the weekend. So you can go there and see all of our coverage from it. There's a great interview with, uh, Romeo Candido, who is, he was the creator of the show top line, which closed out the festival. Um, and that's, uh, written by Jericho Tadeo and it's a great piece. So yeah, I would say go there and I'm on underscore Rachel cage at, Twitter and Instagram and my website is rachelcage.com as usual. Awesome. Of course. Uh, make sure you follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you have seen Casablanca, let us know your thoughts. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. And if you really like listening to the show, consider tipping us on coffee. Thanks for checking us out. Thank mm-hmm. you.